Warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and today I am solo because Jess has been really, really sick and is in the trenches of that, unfortunately. But we will have her back next episode, hopefully. And today, we are going to go ahead and take a Gwen break. We are going to cover the last two episodes of The Way Down. But since I am by myself today, I am going to bring you guys a case that has always stuck with me. Y'all know I have a soft spot for children cases and also unsolved cases. So today, we're going to talk about the disappearance of Stephanie Crane. Now, this case takes place in Chalice, Idaho, a small town just of over a thousand people back in 1993. Today, it's roughly over a little more than 1,100 people. Of course, being this size, everybody knows everyone. Stephanie lived in this town with her parents, Ben and Sandy, her three sisters, and her grandma, Hazel, who lived next door. Chalice was described as a safe town that kids could just go play and do their thing as long as they were home by sundown. And millennials and Gen X and whatnot, you guys probably also had those rules. I know I did. But on October 11th of 1993, things changed. So nine-year-old Stephanie went to the bowling alley across the street from her school with her friends once they were released at 3 p.m. And this was a normal thing for her to go do because she was a part of the bowling league. The kids played three games that day, and at 4.45 p.m., they started wrapping things up so they could all go home. One of the moms named Luann was there keeping score, and when they were leaving, she saw Stephanie standing in the parking lot. She asked Stephanie if she was going home. She says yes, and she sees Stephanie head out. Stephanie always walked home from school and from the bowling alley. After Luann sees her, though, another mom says that she saw Stephanie pretty much right after that and was going in the opposite direction of her house and going towards the school. She stopped and asked Stephanie if she needed a ride, but she tells her no, that she just forgot her backpack at the soccer field, so she was going to go grab it. Even with the pit stop at the school, this should have put her back to her house at 5 p.m. Every day, she went by her grandma's house first just to say hi and check in since it was on her way to her house. She literally lived next door. And after her visits with Grandma Hazel, she would go home next door. But on this day, 5 p.m. came and went and Stephanie wasn't home. 
So Sandy calls Grandma Hazel to ask if Stephanie maybe lost track of time and is still there. She realizes that Stephanie never came by. She looked out in her yard. Maybe she was playing outside, but there was no Stephanie. So the two women began looking for her. As time passes, night arrives. Stephanie was said to be extremely afraid of the dark and did not like staying at other people's houses because of this. So she wouldn't have been out hiding in the dark with her friends or anything like that. This was completely out of character for her. They do call all of her friends' houses, though, to see if she possibly was playing at one of her friends and forgot to tell them, but nobody had seen Stephanie since the bowling alley. After their search efforts had no luck, Sandy goes to the police station to report Stephanie missing. Many times with cases like this, there really isn't that urgency or they jump to conclusions that the child may have ran away, but not in Chalice. They immediately began searching for Stephanie and around 50 people came to help. Sadly, though, by midnight, there would be no Stephanie and they would have to call it for the night. The next morning, they had over 100 volunteers and state deputies, which is great because even if these aren't all Chalice residents, which they pretty much all were, I believe, that's what, 10% of the town's population? Like, that's a big chunk if you think of the bigger picture. So it's really nice to see that not only authorities are taking this seriously, but the community as well. And with that, flyers were made and began to be sent out, even out of state. They were trying to completely cover their bases. As soon as word got out that Stephanie was missing and the flyers circulated, tips started coming in. One in particular was about a yellow truck. Now, this vehicle was parked by the high school parking lot all day the previous day, and no one recognized it. And this is significant because it's a distinctive vehicle. A yellow truck is not a common vehicle, right? Especially in a small town like this. In high school, I had a yellow Mustang convertible, and my town was bigger, but everyone knew it was mine. So in a town this size, they absolutely would have known who the truck belonged to if it was a local. So because nobody knew who this truck belonged to, police went to go check it out and see if they could find out who the owner was, but it was gone. Something else to note is that while conducting the searches, the canine units lost Stephanie's scent just yards from the bowling alley, which could suggest that she got into a vehicle. The search efforts continued, and four days after Stephanie went missing, the authorities decided to talk with the children she was with at the bowling alley. They mentioned there was a man there that nobody knew, a stranger who was watching them play, but didn't think anything of it because, you know, you're at a bowling alley. A sketch artist, though, came in, and that was passed around but it would be another dead end. At this point, the thought came back that maybe somebody who was passing through took her. The town had a main road to the highway that people had to take. It was basically one of those passing through towns. And because it was hunting season, there was much more traffic during this time of year versus non-hunting season. So as time went on, more tips came in and someone mentioned another vehicle, a blue van that was pulled off the highway about a mile from the bowling alley slash school the night Stephanie went missing. 45 minutes after she went missing, somebody reported seeing it pull off and two men arguing. They thought it was odd that there was no license plate or anything like that on the vehicle. Sketch as fuck. Obviously, they're trying to drive this vehicle under the radar, whatever it's for. Over a year would go by and Stephanie's family still had no answers. They held a memorial service for her in September of 1994. Then in 1995, Sandy and Ben filed for divorce. Ben stayed there in Chalice with their other daughters and Sandy relocated to Nevada. Shortly after her move, Sandy passed away from blood clots in her lungs. 
Now, two more years would go by, and one day, Fish and Game called the police department in Chalice. They had let them know that they arrested a man named Keith Hescock for unlawful possession of wildlife, and they found child pornography. And when taking a look at things, it was concluded that he was more than likely in Chalice at the time of Stephanie's disappearance because he was hunting. And he also had a yellow truck, but of course, it was sold and gone. So this lead fizzled out as well. Interesting timing with all that. That just is like, what? A year after this, Ben and the girls moved to Washington and Grandma Hazel remains in Chalice. Now, this will bring us to May of 2000, almost seven years since Stephanie disappeared. An inmate in Nampa, Idaho, says that he had some information on Stephanie. He said that he had a female friend who rented a room from a man's apartment in Chalice the same time frame that Stephanie disappeared, and that in 1993, she and the neighbors heard screaming coming from the basement. Which I'm like, if I'm hearing screams in a basement, especially the place I live, I'ma call the cops. Just saying. But she had been told by him previously that nobody was allowed down there and it was locked and had windows boarded up. She then confronts him about the screaming and then he says it's his daughter who ran away and he put her in there to punish her and she was just throwing a fit. Well, sad friend says, what the fuck? And goes through his stuff one day when he's gone because obviously this is so sketchy all around. Well, it gets worse. She found a pair of girls underwear. Then she immediately ended her lease and left. And it comes out that this guy was arrested a year before Stephanie went missing for sexual assault of his daughter. He was convicted of sexual abuse in the third degree, but had no time spent in jail. So this makes you think like, even if it's not Stephanie, it could have been another victim that was never found. We don't know. And the fact that not only did this woman hear the screaming, the tenant, but neighbors did too, it really makes you think like, why was nobody calling the cops? Of course, if you ask him, he's going to deny it. He's going to make up some bullshit story because let's be honest, there's no way after those charges, he would be around his daughter like he would have had to kidnap her. And that's a whole other thing. And on top of that, authorities do find him and have him take a polygraph test, which again, we know how polygraphs can be unreliable, but this is the 90s. So of course, this is like high time for polygraph tests. So he failed. And then they get a search warrant for the apartment. And in the basement, they found a mattress with blood stains and rope with hair on it. Samples of this is sent to the lab and the hair is human, but there's no follicle attached. So they're not able to figure out who it belonged to. And the sample of blood was too small to come back with anything either. Because again, 90s or I guess 2000 at this point. But even in the 2000s, the technology that we have today for forensic testing and things was in its infancy back then. So it's really disappointing that they were not able to get anything. But I mean, you can't really blame the lab or blame anybody for that. I am curious if there would be any way to retest it. I haven't seen anything, so I'm not sure. But it makes you think, right? Now, while doing this, the authorities connect with an employee that was working at the bowling alley that day that Stephanie disappeared and showed her a photo lineup. She points at the same man that they had found the mattress in his basement, but apparently was kind of iffy on if she was 100% sure. Now jump ahead two more years, and in June of 2002, Keith, the hunter mentioned, comes up again. 
He kidnapped a 14-year-old girl and raped her. He had her handcuffed to the bed, but this victim was able to get a fire extinguisher and beat the handcuffs with it to escape. She told the police that he has done this before and killed another little girl. Police go to his house to wait for him, and he takes off, of course, once he sees them. He crashes his car, shoots a deputy and a police dog, then shoots himself and dies. The deputy lives but the dog does not. And authorities are left with another lead fizzling out. Then, four years later, in December of 2006, a man took his own life in Thorn Creek, Idaho. He left a note saying that his friend Kevin Mooney said he picked up, raped, and killed a little girl in Chalice in 1993, and her name was Steph. So they go to find Kevin, and he passes his polygraph and denies all of this. And sadly, on the 19th anniversary, Ben died of a heart attack. To this day, Grandma Hazel is still seeking justice, and there have been no updates. Authorities are asking anyone with any information about Stephanie is encouraged to call the Custer County Sheriff's Office at 208-879-2232. And you can also call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. You can also send an email to stephaniecranetips at gmail.com. And all of that information will be in the show notes. So that is going to go ahead and wrap up this episode for today. Have you guys heard about this case? I would love to know. If you have other cases that are similar to this that need more attention, please email us. Please put them in the Facebook group. Everything is in the show notes and the link tree. But with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap things up for today. And we'll see you back here on Monday. Bye, guys. 